It's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Boat Talk with your hosts Alan Sprague and Mike Joyce is up next. Good morning, good morning. It's uh, second Tuesday, the month, 10 o'clock. Time for Boat Talk here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill. Um, Boat Talk is a call-in show for people contemplating things naval with your rusty anchors, Mike Joyce and Alan Sprague, uh, to... Two old uh, boat guys with fishy credentials <laughs> here for uh, one hour of all sorts of uh, water-related stuff, and, and maybe not, too. We're going to go jump right into a little bit of uh, local news first and then go on to a couple of guests coming up in a few minutes. Yeah, pretty excited this morning. We're going to be uh, talking early to our friend Paul Anderson, who is uh, not only a, a uh, longtime WERU volunteer, founder of Bronze Wound, but also a scientist. Well, he's the director of Maine Sea Grant, which has been Sea Grant has been in the news quite a bit lately if you've been paying it all attention. Yeah. We're also going to talk uh, in the um uh hopefully at 10:20 we'll be getting a call from the south of France from uh, Michael Finkel. Michael wrote The Stranger in the Woods, the story of the North Pond Hermit. Now, why, why boat talk? I was asked earlier today, and uh, well, he lived next to a pond and borrowed a canoe every once in a while, but we'll also be talking about uh, uh, being a hermit and a castaway, uh, a place to be by yourself is out to sea, or uh, be Robinson Crusoe. Can you be Robinson Crusoe uh, if you were cast away on the shore of the state of Maine? Could you survive by foraging? Or Again, the North Pond Hermit story is more than a little bit interesting. We talked to Michael Finkel this morning. Like to start though, we um, talked last month and uh, the month before about uh, climate change has been uh, quite a bit in the news and just an uh, item of interest to begin with. Uh, one of the points that I was uh, uh, relating was that you can throw crap at anything and make doubt of uh, you know e-, e equals mc square if you if you go about it right um, and. It's kind of instructive because, you know, to put it mildly, Donald Trump's president. So, you know. Um, but uh, I read a book last uh, month that we talked about. It's called The Great Derangement. Amitav Ghosh, he's an Indian uh, writer who uh, wrote a pretty interesting book. And his thesis is that it's not an ecological story. It's about power and money. And because mm-hmm. it's about power and money... Uh, that's how things will be decided. So how does that end up? And and in the Great Derangement, his uh, theory is that ends up with a paradigm he calls the armed lifeboat versus the politics of attrition of the others. The armed lifeboat. The armed lifeboat. Mm -hmm. And uh, like I say, the uh, uh, people that can afford to be in the lifeboat uh, will be working against the interest of, of attrition of others who are not so fortunate is uh, the paradigm that he sees coming. Now, remember we, we interviewed our, my friend uh, Captain Sonny Bernard Perkins a long oh, yeah. time ago. Sonny 
not only Navy SEAL, able-bodied seaman, merchant master. Sonny was in a lifeboat with some Spanish. Uh, he was on a, catching a ride on a Spanish tanker one time, which uh, cracked in half and sank in the Pacific, okay? And he ended up in a lifeboat with some Spanish guys that were having a knife fight. Among themselves. Yes. Armed lifeboat parody paradigm. Well, lifeboats are tricky places to begin with. We'll talk about that later today, too. And uh, when a fight broke out in the armed lifeboat, uh, here's, here's how Sonny put it. You best be the baddest mother in the lifeboat. I took the knife from him and threw it overboard. <laughs> You know? Good. <laughs> and uh, let's not end up in an armed lifeboat paradigm is, is I guess, what we're saying. But um, in the news related, Bloomberg News, which is a major business financial, uh, you know, journalistic uh, enterprise, um, has come up with a new website. And uh, it's called climatechanged.com. Their point is that this is a business um, story. And they're going to cover it as such. The impact on world economies and businesses is what climatechanged.com is all about. From uh, their sustainability editor, uh, climate change is fundamentally an economic story. It's an economic problem. It's naturally a business story. It's the mother of all risk. And if you have intelligence agencies around the world identifying climate change as one of the great destabilizing forces, there's a massive risk to contend with for any business or investor, and that's how they're going to cover that because, again, um, the ecology of it is science, but the money of it's more political, and, and there you go. Liability's a bad thing. When well, it's, money's driving it now for sure. Oh, boy. So we also had Earth Day in between uh, last boat talk and today, which, which uh, was a beautiful thing. Yeah. And record amounts of people <laughs> yeah. went out and marched. And, and they did that for the earth, and, and um, you know, again, not unrelated, they did that partly because Donald Trump is president right now, and they're worried about funding for this, that, and the other. Um, the uh, And again, the crap that you can throw at that is instructive, um, you know, of propaganda in general. From the uh, Fox News channel, uh, Fox 5, they, um, they want to put forward a false narrative so they can get people to come out and march and go nuts about... The saving the earth is is uh, this whole thing that the earth is going to be over and we need to save it and that whole deal and, and get people upset about cumulus clouds, you know. And Bill Nye, the science guy, is lying his ass off because he's got a TV show. And you can buy scientists because I know that nicotine is not addictive. I bought some scientists to tell me that when I was... Uh, um, and again, liabilities... You can't buy many. You can buy a few loudmouths, but... I think the majority of scientists are, are ethical. Here's uh, another quote about uh, science. The thing about science is it's true whether you believe it or not. And uh, how about this for a question? Um, uh, came up when I was researching this, too. Do scientists skew left? I like to ask on the Barefoot Blues Hour, uh, Steve Earle asked this question, um, why are there no great right-wing folk singers? Well, people have di different tendencies. Now, to science skew left like artists. Um, this uh, thing from peoplepress.org uh, uh, people says that only 6% of scientists are Republicans, 52% of them are liberal, and 14% of them are very liberal. Um, again, to science skew left. Truth is an awkward thing when you're doing politics. Absolute truth is not good for politics. <laughs> yeah. And liability. Oh, yeah. and, and again, uh, the armed lifeboat comes up and, and uh, you know, uh, like I say, 
uh, I find the irony that the uh, deniers accuse science of, of faking it for the money. And again, they know that you can hire scientists because they got something to stand up and say nicotine's not addictive. So, mm -hmm. you know, but it don't age well. It don't age well and history may not be kind. No, I don't think history will be kind, but uh, the way we're going, we may not have any historians in a few years either. Well, um, so. and uh, what's the uh, last word to uh, Bill O'Reilly? Uh, now no longer with Fox News. Bye, Nobody can control the climate but God, and is NASA making up things about alien life like they're making up that climate change? Yeah. Well, yeah, they're making up a lot of things to uh, justify uh cutting good funding, including um, just we've heard recently the Sea Grant. And uh, we have, I believe we have Paul Anderson on the line right now to talk about uh, the main Sea Grant. Good morning, Paul. Hi, Alan. Hi, Mike. Morning, Paul. Welcome to Boat Talk. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I realize your time is limited, so we'll uh, try to just go through this briefly. Um should say probably first that uh, you... Maine Sea Grant has your own radio show here on WERU where I'm sure you're going to discuss uh, things more fully. Why don't you talk quickly about that and then we'll get to you some, some questions. Well, sure. The, um, you know, the university through the Sea Grant program and for a long time with Cooperative Extension have been supporters of WERU and we've participated in some of the spoken word programming. And right now, I think for about a year and a half now, Natalie Springle from the Cigarette staff has led what's called Coastal Conversations. And it is one of the Friday programs in rotation and uh, talks about um, themes similar to yours, really, on Boat Talk, but, um, but getting into some of the work that we do along Maine's coast on a whole range of issues, working with citizens and scientists and communities, uh, industry members, fishermen, and the like. Um, and get their voices on the radio through your wonderful community radio station. Well, thanks. Um, so we all we all know that President Trump is uh, proposing a fund or cutting the funding for all the Sea Grant programs. Um, let's let's go to the to the negative side first. Um, can you talk about some of the programs, particularly here in Maine, that um, are Good programs that might go away, and sure. Uh, and the first, thank you for giving giving me the opportunity to speak about this to your listeners. Um, the Sea Grant program is a, a state federal partnership program funded under uh, NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, and um, it's a fifty year old program. It's been in place for that long and has created strong partnerships, primarily with the land-grant universities at 34 different states around the country in the Great Lakes. And so for every dollar that we bring in from NOAA, the Sea Grant program, our universities and our state comes up with 50 cents. So it's a, it's a match program. It's a collaboration, and we have skin in the game here in Maine to help enable the programming that we do. Um, right now, Maine Sea Grant is a kind of a modest the modest size sea grant program and we bring in about 1.2 million dollars per year from NOAA and we find the match through uh, university investments and through other state partners um, so all told I manage about a two million dollar program and the sea grant construct is really a ripoff of land grant which was created under President Lincoln's 
leadership so many years ago. And what it does is it has three parts to it that are integrated and, and have proven to be extremely valuable to the nation. And that is that we blend science through research uh, with education and, and with uh, outreach and engagement. So our land-grant institutions across the country have been doing that primarily with agricultural types of issues, but even more around entrepreneurial and, and other sorts of opportunities that our states find and to uh, solve problems and plow the, the ground, as it were, for those kinds of initiatives. We employ competitive research projects. Um, we fund the, the education of people all the way from K to gray, and a lot of it at, uh, grad, at undergrad and graduate levels at our, our institutions. And then we do a lot out in the field. So your cooperative extension agent of long ago that helps with the blueberry fields here in Maine or the, the potato fields up north or even your home back garden uh, is kind of an extension engagement function. So the Sea Grant folks, 50 years ago, a handful of senators said, let's create that that land grant thing, but do it for the ocean issues. And therein was born Sea Grant. It was right around the same time that NOAA was created. And so here in Maine, we, we Maine Sea Grant has just that same construct, those three pieces where we fund competitive research projects related to ocean and coastal issues. And I have a team of extension people, including Natalie Springle that I just mentioned, that work and live in the coast uh, in the communities that they serve. And, uh, and we do a 12 work um, in some of the schools and some of the um, uh, teachers that want to get involved in our programming. And we also sponsor graduate and undergraduate students. So it's a relatively modest program, but we, we feel like we leverage a lot of enthusiasm and impact um, with our partnerships so that a lot of other institutions, whether they're uh, higher education or nonprofits that are working along the coast or the communities themselves, and even the industry folks that want to get involved in the, and find that nexus between uh, community policy and science. That is really where so much important stuff happens for our communities. Paul, you're talking about the value of uh, the Maine Sea Grant thing. You also uh, got to mention the interest in laboratory. You have the Gulf of Maine as an incredibly dynamic body of water, which, uh, going back to our other subject, is said to be warming faster than uh, just about any other place on Earth. And, and again, a pretty valuable uh, resource. That's absolutely right, Mike. Um, it, it, the Gulf of Maine is, has been known as kind of a sea within the sea because of Georgia's bank that kind of isolates us from the northwest Atlantic. And it has some peculiar um, oceanography that makes it so. It also makes it a really unique and highly productive estuary system and vulnerable to, to the changes that you just mentioned there. Not only temperature, but we're we're likely to be seeing the effects of other kinds of ocean chemistry impacts like ocean acidification, which is the changing of the pH of the water. When I was in graduate school, we believed the oceans were so full of salts and other kinds of um, molecules that, that it was buffered against any kind of potential pH change. We just didn't think in the scientific community that it could ever happen. And, well, here it is, you know, 30 years later, and it's not only happening it's it's happening and we know it's going to get worse in some of these places and so we're studying those kinds of questions what's the vulnerability of a juvenile lobster to ocean acidification that's an important question and it's got a 500 
$500 million value to it right now. Trying to understand that question. Cover story on the Fisherman's Voice newspaper in front of me, warming water, changing lobster behavior. Yep. You know, like say, it's it's a serious business. Paul, um, several of your programs, I believe, are also um, help people start up in um, marine-related businesses, too. So you're, you're actually creating jobs, too. Is that correct? That's very true, uh, Alan. Um, our portfolio runs across a lot with commercial fisheries, traditional fisheries, mostly the state-managed ones, but a lot recently with aquaculture and helping to figure out if aquaculture is going to be a legitimate part of Maine's working waterfront which it certainly can be. How can we do it right, and how can we help people get involved? We think it's a way for fishermen to diversify and still wear boots to work, so to speak, and um, create quality seafood and local jobs and also maintain environmental quality. So there's a triple bottom line there for some of the work that we do that pays attention to both conservation and environmental, um, you know, safety and ethic, but um, but also recognizes we got to work. we got to work in waterfront here on the coast of Maine. And better to put it to work and keep it viable than to let it get filled up with you know, condominiums and, and um, other kinds of, you know, um, infrastructure that might drive away some of our own natural resource-based factors. i got to just back up and, and tell the folks that President Trump um, is proposing, and it's likely to come out in his budget in May, the elimination of Sea Grant, but also the elimination of of a huge portion of the science um, being sponsored in NOAA and across the NSF, uh, the National Institutes of Health, uh, the, the Department of the EPA. Corporation and, uh, for Public Broadcasting. Yeah, a whole bunch of humanity, humanities cuts, a whole bunch of uh, social services cuts, the State Department. And we, we heard about that back in March, and we um, put out a... a call for support and we got a lot of support across the country as you mentioned already the science march and various marches um and we know even in deep red states the sea grant program is being um held up as a, a real model for what is good government what is good investment in government and and that we can't let mr trump throw away uh, so many years of positive progressive um building of programs just simply to uh, do some ar- arithmetic that gets him his $56 billion number that he needs somehow to improve, uh, invest in our, 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 our defense department. So we anticipate that coming out in, uh, in a few weeks, and um, we will be calling on, um, I mean, all citizens should look at that carefully and consider contacting their congressman and uh, expressing their viewpoints about any number of um, challenges that that budget is going to represent. Thanks for talking to us this morning, Paul. Fun fact, on the way out here, you were talking about uh, there's a lot of salt in the ocean. I uh, picked this up in a book called Where the Water Goes. It's about the Colorado River yesterday. According to an estimate cited by the U.S. Geological Survey, if you removed all the salt from all the world's seawater and spread it evenly on the land, it would cover the entire non-ocean surface of the earth 500 feet deep. It's a lot of salt. That's pretty impressive. Well, Paul, thank you very much. We need to move on to another phone call, but um, I I started out asking for the negative stuff of things, programs that would be taken away if Sea Grant disappears, but you went into the uh, the positive side. There is, seems to be quite a bit of bipartisan support for Sea Grant, so hopefully the rationality will prevail here. But as you say, 
we need to keep pressure on our legislators. Absolutely. Thank you both for having me. Thank you, Paul. That's Paul Anderson of Maiden Sea Grant, and uh, we're waiting for another phone call, I believe, to come from France. But while while we do that, I have a, a little notice that's coming here from the International Maritime Film Festival that happens uh, yearly down in um, at the Alamore Theater in Bucksport. The International Marine Film Festival is now accepting submissions for the second annual juried contest of films, films that celebrate the heritage heritage the spirit of adventure and ingenuity of boats and waterborne pursuits. It's uh, put together in conjunction with Wooden Boat Publications. Happens at the Alamo Theater. The showings of the movies will happen in the end of September 29th through October 1st. But if you'd like to, uh, if you're incensed about some of the discussion that's happening today about boat or water quality or Whatever you uh, like to make a film, you're certainly welcome to. They accept documentary films on a broad range of maritime subjects. They include, but are not limited to, voyaging, racing, working, leisure, boat building and restoration, historical documentary, and environment and science. And it's it's a jury thing. There's a prizes at the end for the winners they get a thousand bucks and uh, if you'd like some more information on how to how to enter into this uh, film festival you can go online to maritimefilmfestival.com that's maritimefilmfestival.com i got to point out that the first annual maritime film festival which i I'm, i uh, sadly missed i was off yeah, uh, I'd like to see these movies. well we were the stars you and i Boat Talk Boys oh, of uh, the first Maritime lost International Faith. Raw Faith. Yes. yes, because we actually, Alan and I, star in a movie called uh, <laughs> Raw Faith. You're definitely stretching star. No, no, no. <laughs> uh, we beyond star in it, Alan. We anchor the thing. And what they did was uh, told the Raw sta- Faith story uh, by using Boat Talk ongoing uh, uh, commentary on it as a background and, and used our... He did, yeah. Yes, they did. So uh, legitimately enough, uh, whether it's true or not, I say we starred in that movie. So I'm a movie star and that's that. Okay. Yeah, I'll let you walk to Hollywood. But How are we doing otherwise? Uh, well, we're ready to, to go uh, go to the Hermitage. Michael Fankel, are you there from the south of France this morning? I am here. I'm glad. I'm happy to be on the show. Welcome to, oh, to Boat Talk, Michael. May we welcome? Uh, very glad to have you, Michael. Uh, very famous for uh, writing the Stranger in the Woods, the story of the um, uh, North Pond Hermit. I met him. Uh, run into him on his uh, World Book Tour at the Bangor Library. Um, Michael, let's start off with what's usually the Boat Talk question, which is uh, more about how you end up be a boat person. But how did you end? Up, what happened to you when you were young? You ended up to be a writer. You know, I'm one of those lucky guys. I kind of knew what I wanted to be my whole life. Uh, I, like, kept a journal when I was, like, the age of 10 and said I wanted to be a journalist and a writer, and who really ever says that? You know, I really I really love my job. I get to I get to have everybody else's job for, like, a couple of weeks, which is, which is like, kind of my perfect thing. I have a kind of a short attention span, and, uh, yes, I've always wanted to be a writer and a journalist, and I literally, I'm, you know, 48 years old, and to this day... I cannot believe I actually can make somewhat of a living doing it. How lucky is that, right? And and uh, 
you've written the North Pond Hermit story. You also write for some high-end magazines. Um, you have an interesting way of researching um, possible material, I heard. Well, I mean, both. I mean, when it came to the uh, North Pond Hermit story, and I think probably many of your listeners are familiar with it, which is basically, uh, you know, a guy in the Belgrade Lakes area uh, there in central Maine um, lived all by himself, literally without ever having a conversation with anyone for 27 years. And not only did he live by himself, he fed himself by breaking into uh, summer homes. And so it was like, it was this legendary story. In fact, nobody believed the story until the guy was caught, and then probably half the people still don't believe it. Um, he was put in jail for breaking into homes and stealing food, and I really like writing letters to people in jail, both this book about the hermit and my previous one, which is about a murderer. I, uh, I wrote letters to people in jail. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time in my life in jail except visiting other inmates, but it's a highly pressure-filled situation and to get a letter from the outside world is often what they call a lifeline and people tend to respond anyway that's that's generally my that's been my um mo for a for a couple of books now it uh uh also heard that you can just google uh, extraordinary stories oh yeah when, I, when, I, when i'm looking for ideas yeah uh, you know it's like when I, when I finish a project you know i just like i just like uh you know, I like I like extraordinary stories, and sometimes uh, I guess everybody out there, every once in a while, falls into like a Google rabbit hole where you just sort of follow the. You know, I mean, they call it surfing the net for a reason, which is that it is sort of like surfing. You don't know where you're going next, or what wave is going to be good or bad. And uh, yeah, sometimes when I'm looking for a great story, I literally will Google in, you know, what's a great story or what's an amazing story, and just see what pops up. I think I'm giving it away to all those budding journalists out there. <laughs> just something as simple as that, and just see where you end up. Uh, one of those surfing. Uh, sessions once brought me to a guy um, um, who, this I'm, I'm, I'm not making this up, who, a blind man who taught himself to navigate the world with echo location, like a bat, he made this click, and he could hear the echoes off of it. I'm not kidding. His name is Daniel Kish. I like you've heard of uh, him, yeah. He made his own yeah. click? Yeah, he made a click out of his mouth. Like, out of his mouth. But but yeah. a beautiful one, and could hear, it, 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 it sounded like you ever light a cast stove and have that little pop like, he made this beautiful click, and, uh, yeah, so that's, sometimes I find people just by the, you know, just by some random seat of my pants uh, surfing on, uh, on, the, uh, on the web. And if we look at it right, we'll never run out of material, will we, Michael? It's... You know, I, I, I truly believe, and this might just, you might roll your eyes, but I, there are amazing stories everywhere. I have, you know, I'm, I like to go to bars in the evening, that's where I, you know, journalists tend to be late sleepers and late stay uppers. Um, you know, I often just sit at a bar and people tell me, people like to tell you their life stories. And I, I you know, I'd say the vast majority of people's life stories have really interesting things in them. So, yeah, long story short, we're, ne- um, we're humans love to tell stories to each other and we will never run out. Thank God. And the great ones, uh, you know, if I could, have meaning to them that's, that's uh, bigger than just the personal, have, have universal meaning to them, like this hermit story, which. I must say, as a reader, uh, it's the biggest compliment I can give somebody to say that made me think. And not only did your book make me think, it's made me keep thinking. I'll be thinking about that forever, I think, um, on, a, on a bunch of different levels. Um, so you wrote a, wrote a letter to this fellow, Chris Knight, in, in prison, and he did respond to you, but he's uh, not a people person. 
that's one way to put it for sure. You know, Chris Knight, who literally went 27 years without talking to anyone, but, you know, there have been hermits. As long as there have been humans, there have been hermits, and they're kind of a primal fascination. Wherever there's been hermits, people have wanted to know, know, of course, you know, why did you leave the world behind? Um, How did you survive, especially in Chris Knight's case? And then what did you learn? What do you have to say? And... um, I fell victim to those very, you know, same things. Like, I just wanted to know uh, what he had to say. And, uh, you know, I, sometimes I guess you have to follow your obsessions, but I did make it difficult for me. I'm trying I'm trying to write a story or trying to communicate with a person who really, as you said, is not a people person, hadn't spoken to anyone in 27 years. But i got to tell you, Mike, he had an amazing mind, this guy, Chris Knight. Uh, you remember that story, uh, Into the Wild, uh, with uh, Christopher McCandless? Yeah, the, uh, living in the bus in Alaska, yeah. Yeah, he he died after four months. He made a mistake, he ate the wrong thing, he poisoned himself, he died of starvation, and, you know, that was partially bad luck, but also partially, you know, he just didn't have it. He didn't have what it takes to survive. Now, Chris Knight, boy, this guy lived 27 years in the woods, never even lit a fire came out of the woods strong as an ox. He really had not only amazing mind for figuring out problems, but also um, was blessed with a lot of physical grace and attributes that he, where he could walk through the woods and sort of quietly and jump from rock to rock. And, you know, so he had like, he, he was like the, uh, the ideal person. If anyone can live 27 years completely alone, it would be someone like Chris Knight. And I was riveted by the story, by the true crime aspect, by the survival aspect, by the solitude. And as you said, by what you as the reader can learn by encountering Chris Knight. And you could be furious at him for being a thief, or you could give him like your utmost respect for sort of ditching uh, all the craziness of our world and everything in between, and you're not wrong. Hate him, love him, somewhere in between. He's that kind of guy where no matter how you feel, you that's probably correct. Well, we'll, uh, of course, talk extensively about being a hermit here, but uh, what I took from the book is you can't be. Strictly speaking, a hermit, we're uh, social animals, and um, at the best, we need a tribe to support us. Um, in general, uh, uh, solo uh, castaways don't survive, you know. But Chris Knight, you describe him as not only uh, amazingly smart, but with a great memory and uh, a very honest person, which is kind of, you know, it's a world of contradictions for somebody who had to steal to be a hermit. Cause, and again... Um, I guess let's let's go to hermits to start with here. Um, you can't be a hermit by yourself. Uh, Thoreau had his mother do his laundry and cater a dinner party, right? Um, other great mystics have people leave food at the at the mouth of the rock. There, you can't at the mouth of the cave. Um, you know, you can't keep it together by yourself and be mystical. You can't have a whole bunch of books that you can steal from <laughs> perpetually and get new. Know, that doesn't really make it a hermit to me. Yeah, I think I think one of the ironies, as you mentioned, is that you really, despite the fact that you can call yourself a hermit, you we all need to lean on each other, by you know, in some fashion. Uh, Chris Knight was possibly the most isolated person you'll ever encounter, maybe even the annals of history. But still, just because he didn't see anyone and speak to anyone or make any phone calls or send any emails, uh, he still relies on the rest of the world. And, you know, as you mentioned, uh, he, stole, uh, he stole food and he stole books. And 
Uh, again, one of the confounding aspects of this is that though he was a thief, the moment he was arrested, he never he never told a lie. He immediately admitted to everything he had done. So it's a uh, it, you know the story of like a thousand and one little elements to it that are extraordinary and confounding and hard. You know, I can be a journalist. I'll be I can be a journalist for a hundred years. I'll never come across a story sort of this rich and strange. It's one of the mild things I like to say. It's a world of contradictions, and and uh, he's sure full of them. Uh, there's no doubt about that. He uh, lived a fairly interesting lifestyle. Um, he had a lot of extra time. He was a reader. He also um, stole radios and tried to watch television. He liked Rush Limbaugh and uh, Leonard Skinner. <laughs> yeah, you know, let's see about... Yes, he, he wanted to keep stole a little four-inch diagonal black-and-white television early in his uh, escape from the world. He, the last time he ever watched TV was after the... Uh, terrorist attack of September 11, 2001. Um, he either quit after that uh, because of uh, partially out of disgust, and also he told me that the, the little television just took up too many batteries, and uh, and so he uh, you know he was good at wiring together batteries. He could steal boat batteries and car batteries, all the blocky things, and sort of wire them up to make a, to make to make up the right amount of voltage to work the TV. And uh, yeah, he took a bunch of radios. He liked radios. Uh, he had a he had he had his own um, tastes, and I sort of liked listening to him when he talked about his tastes because a lot of us we try and you know as, as much as we maybe deny it, I think we're influenced by you know trying to be cool, our social sort of our social the social rigors. And Chris Knight, having lived all by himself, you know, when it came to books he didn't like, he just said I don't like them. Uh, you know, when it came to certain poets and. Uh, when it came to music, you know, he he thinks Leonard Skinner is the greatest, you know, music, musicians uh, that have ever lived, perhaps. <laughs> and with some classical music in there, too. And again, the man was pretty oh, smart, yeah. has, has some good taste. Uh, uh, didn't like Kerouac. I kind of, uh, not a fan of Kerouac myself, so, you know. Um, but And forced to read uh, more Stephen King books than he probably wanted to. Um but he lived a strange kind of um, a lifestyle there, and one of the things that just blew me away, and, and you too, he never lit a fire, but that's because he was sneaking the whole time. He was right next to, literally, third of a mile from the nearest camp, right? Yes. there. Are, uh, you know, I think we mentioned this a few minutes ago, that there are so many confounding aspects to this story. Yeah, there are, I think everyone I spoke to that lived somewhere on North Pond had their point where they're just like, uh, here's where I can't believe it. Uh, you know, here's the point where the whole story breaks down, and I just can't believe it. For some people, it was like, he didn't see a doctor for 27 years? You know, how is that possible? For other people, it was like, hey, man, I'm a camper. You know what happens when you stock food in your camp, which Chris Knight did to get through the winter? He's, you know, animals come and rip, rip your camp apart. That's the point I can't believe. And then other people said, oh, what about the great ice storm? of 1998 you know there's just no way he would have survived that um and for me personally the point that i couldn't get over was the no fire like you know how cold it is in maine in winter it's like you know i spent most of my life in montana it's it's not just cold it's just it's deadly cold and everything around you burns too it's it's you know and and so we talked about you know i i was fortunate enough to not just exchange letters with Chris Knight, but also to be able to visit him in the Kennebec County Jail. Um, 
nine different occasions, and then even after his release. And it was really nice to be able to talk to him and say, like, how did you survive without a fire? And just to answer that one, which, of course, is in the book, um, you know, I asked him, you know, did you just huddle yourself up, you know, in all these sleeping bags and have this sort of human hibernation? And Chris Knight, who's a smart dude, as we covered, uh, said, no, that's not at all how you survive in very, very cold weather. If you huddle in a sleeping bag, you're going to die. The human body breathes. We produce condensation all the time. Uh, we can't help it. It's part of our how we live, and that, that, that condensation will freeze, and starting from your fingers and toes, uh, hypothermia will march to your heart and kill you. What Chris Knight did all winter was get up at uh, 2.30 in the morning, which is pretty much the depth of cold, when I would be like just clutching my sleeping bag. He would uh, get up, get out of his tent, and pace the outside of his tiny site around and around and around all night long, every night, all winter for 27 winters. And he never lost so much as a uh, toenail to frostbite. He figured out systems for getting around everything. And he did, strictly speaking, light a fire, but he, he stole propane tanks and lit a propane tire. He wasn't against fire. He was against smoke. Yeah, yeah, of course. If he, if there was a way to make a fire without smoke, I'm sure he would have done it. It wasn't it wasn't that he wanted to make his life more difficult. Is that he was, I guess, obsessive isn't even strong enough of a term. He was, you know, whatever, obsessive squared on not being discovered, and so he made these rules. And when Chris Knight made a rule, it wasn't just like it was written in stone. He would rather he would rather die than break the rule. And one of his rules were no. Smoke, smoke gives your campsite away, and he's right. You know, you see smoke coming out of the woods. They they knew there was some hermit in there somewhere. Um, never lit a fire, and you know, it's like I went to his site eight different times. I never found so much as one single charred piece of wood. I kept, you know, I want your listeners to know that though this story sounds extraordinary, I tried as hard as humanly possible to make sure everything I'm saying is absolutely true. I hired professional fact checkers. I had both the um, prosecuting attorney and his defense attorney read it over for any errors. I had the police read it who were privy to many papers that were never made public. And if I was only 99% sure of something, I cut it out. The story is true. You never lit a fire. I just wanted to, if I had found one piece of charred wood at a site and I knew that he was a liar, then the whole story would have fallen apart. But after years of investigating this story, and I worked on this book for three years, there was never... Anything he said to me that was uh, proven to be false, um, it, it, uh, it really did survive. You know, we mentioned uh, no, seeing, no seeing a doctor, or how did he not get sick for 27 years? And I talked to, I talked to doctors about this. The truth is, the main reason why humans get sick is we get sick from each other. We pass germs to yeah. each other. And he wasn't around other people, and therefore he never got sick. You know, you could still get things like cancer or diabetes, but... When I talked to doctors, they were like, yeah, actually, it makes sense that you don't get sick. And I was like, well, what about uh, something like, you know, touching a doorknob, breaking into a house? And the doctor said, you know, germs don't live on inanimate surfaces like that for very long. Never got sick in 27 years because he wasn't around other people. When we mentioned uh, food in the camps, in the tent, well, the thing is, Chris Knight stayed in his own site 99.9% .9 of the time. And as my fellow campers know uh, when you're in your tent, then uh, then you don't uh, then you don't uh, the animals don't come in when you're there. And uh, yeah, as for the great ice storm which I mentioned before, Chris Knight pointed out that 
you know, it's actually not that cold during an ice storm. It's ice. It's like it was like 23 degrees, which is terrible for the roads. And it was wreaked havoc on the electrical wires. But for Chris Knight, it put a layer of ice over the snow and he could walk around without leaving tracks. That was another one of his things. He never wanted to leave tracks. He said if there was a great ice storm every week, he would have preferred it. So he answered every single point of disbelief that anybody had with not just intelligence, but with like, ah, that makes sense. And, uh, you know, as I, as, I, as I mentioned a few minutes ago, this, this story is uh, completely true. We are talking to Michael Finkel this morning. He's called us from the south of France, the author of uh, Stranger in the Woods, an North Pond Hermit story. And, uh, again, we're talking about uh, that story and hermits in general. Michael, you also made what I thought was a pretty interesting point about the culture of Maine um, being kind of unique and, and part of this story, too, in that it's kind of a live and let live. And, and the lady, he was on a private piece of land when the lady who owns it found out. What would she say? Right. So as I was mentioning, everybody seems to have a different reaction to Chris Knight. Now, he, uh, he lived on a private property. In other words, every night for 10,000 nights, Chris Knight was trespassing. And a woman owned the 200-acre lot where he was found. And when I went to her and said, uh, we spoke over the phone, when I spoke to her over the phone and said, how did you feel uh, about a, knowing that a strange man had lived on your property without being invited for 27 years and her answer was i don't care doesn't bother me in fact if i had come across him she said it was more than likely that she would just let him stay there which i found to be a really interesting reaction there were other people around the pond who said that chris knight was the worst thing that ever happened to them in their lives it wasn't that he stole their peanut butter and their stephen king novel it was that he took their sense of security and their peace of mind there were people who said they could never sleep in their cabin comfortably and that they had saved up their money so they could buy a beautiful uh, second home where they could escape the pressures of the world and here was this guy who ruined it for them so as i mentioned previously you know you could hate him or you could respect him and i don't think there i don't think that either of those reactions are wrong Michael, this is a, a call-in show, too, so we're going to throw open the lines, too, and we'll... Uh, All right, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> ...continue on in a second. But the, the call-in number is one 625 one Now, here's the thing to me that uh, I take a lesson from this book there. You can't be a hermit, strictly speaking, by yourself. And I love uh, survival stories. One of my favorite all-time books is called... Desperate Journeys, Abandoned Souls, True Stories of Castaways and Other Survivors. Uh, Leslie and Seagrave wrote that. Um, Robinson Crusoe, such as he is, he's actually a made-up fellow, is, is in there. And, and uh, um, the idea being that you can't survive by yourself. Let's just imagine you were washed up castaway ashore on the state of Maine on a nice day, all by yourself with rags on your back. What are your chances of foraging for a living by yourself? Yeah, for the summer season, not bad. And then once the once the winter comes, and as you know, it's a six month winter at least. Yeah, you're. I mean, even ancient humans always hunted in groups uh, or at least relied on each other. Yeah, there's just no way you can go it alone. You know, human beings are not the strongest uh, animal, no. uh, and we're not the fastest. But why did why did humans come to dominate the planet? Because we got smart, we've got good brains, 
and we can link them together and work okay. together. It's really, if you talk to like anthropologists, they say the chief reason that humans dominate the world is because we learned to work together. Michael, so, um, know, it's, it's, we do have a phone call, so let's uh, take a quick break and go to Yo. Good morning, Yo. Good morning. This is Captain Yo. Yep. It is with sadness I announce that Judith Lawson of Rockland passed since she last called into Boat Talk. Master mariner, lady adventurer, dedicated ecologist, she unfortunately will not be rejoining our discussion of sea level. Hail and farewell, Judy. Apropos, so far, no one I've spoken to has been able to offer any first-hand experience of sea level rise. NASA data show rise of six inches in the last century, two inches in the last 20 years, and everywhere are signs of fluctuating sea level in the geologic past. The Maldives Islands and the West Indian Ocean have been at the epicenter of the debate about global warming causing sea level rise. According to Rand McNally, the Maldives are also at the epicenter of the lowest sea level on Earth, 90 meters below datum. Is it just coincidence? That map was made in 1982. Is it still true? And if it is, how could part of the ocean be higher than another part? Gravitational anomaly? Water is a polar molecule. Could it be magnetism? We know water responds to various stimuli. Could it be conscious behavior? I find this subject fascinating. Perhaps someone like Paul is listening and can offer additional insight. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thanks thank you. for your thanks for your call, Yo. I'll throw one more in on on that pile too from earlier. Um, uh, Bloomberg has called this uh, climate change thing a a uh, economic story, and. The federal government has uh, put up $48 million to relocate the town of Isle de Saint-Jean-Charles, Louisiana. That's the first allocation of federal money to move an entire community struggling with the impact of climate change. And the New York subway was flooded again on the last big rainstorm. So, you know, uh, frogs be boiled uh, gradually at their own peril. Um, but, Michael Fenkel, still on the phone there, aren't you? I'm here. Yeah. Um, again, back to, uh, uh, castaways there. Damn hard to, uh, be a castaway by yourself. Um, let's use, uh, Robinson Crusoe for a, uh, example. Robinson Crusoe, it turns out, was actually a composite character, um, you know, um, and a fellow named Andrew Selkirk was actually self-marooned on an island off of Chile for four years. He was a pirate on a leaky boat. And he told his buddies that the boat was screwed and he wasn't going on it. And he got off the boat on purpose but didn't mean to get stuck for four years mm. as a story on that. And, again, those people generally die by themselves. I wonder what happened to the rest of the crew in the boat, too. The they? boat sank and half the crew did die. Yeah. Yes, that's true. So uh, background to the uh, Robinson Crusoe story. Okay. We have an, another phone call. So let's go to Catherine from Appleton. Good morning, Catherine. Yes, good morning. This is for Michael. Michael, I, I haven't read the book yet, but I did read the article in the Bangor paper, and I was quite intrigued by his affection for the uh, fungi. I guess it was a wood ear that was growing and growing and growing off a stump. And, of course, it reminded me of, you know, Tom Hanks and Castaway. So I know he had a dear affection. He was very concerned, so the article said, about the mushroom. So could you elaborate on that? 
Right. Uh, so the first uh, one of the first times I met with Chris Knight and the jail, you know, I was expressing, as I mentioned before, all this disbelief about his story. And he said, you know, you have to go see my site. Another thing that I couldn't I had trouble believing besides the no fire was the fact that he was literally like, like you said, like a third of a mile or a quarter of a mile from the nearest cabin. How do you go 25 years without being discovered? Well, uh, I found out very quickly that the woods um, around Chris Knight's campsite were as thick as I have ever seen in my life. Uh, I, as I mentioned, I've spent uh, the last 25 years living in Montana, and we have lodgepole forests, which have a, a lot broader, uh, a lot more, a lot, you can walk through those forests a lot e- more easily than you can in the very, very thick forests uh, around Belgrade Lakes, and especially with all those glacially deposited boulders, just, just impossible to navigate. I have never seen nastier or difficult far so i could understand even a couple of hundred feet in the into those woods it's just impossible to find a site i i I, like i went there eight times and all eight times i struggled to find his exact site now after i went to see his site chris knight had a funny sort of question for me he said did you see that big shelf mushroom in the middle of my site and i did it was uh jutting out at about knee height uh, from one of the larger trees in his site, and it was gorgeous. It was, uh, you know, striated. It had uh, bands of sort of like almost goldish brown and lighter uh, tan. It was just gorgeous. It was the size of like a dinner plate. I could rest. A, I could probably put a couple of books on it. It was so um, big and obvious. And when I said, "Yeah, I saw the mushroom," Chris Knight's reaction was really interesting. He said, "Well, I'm really, really happy to hear that." I was concerned that one of the police officers that or that had tromped through the site, they, you know, they pretty rough about it, removing all his his gear and uh, the garbage that he had left behind, that, that they would knock it down. And it turned out that Chris Knight watched this mushroom grow for close to a quarter yeah. of a century. Uh, it started out when it was about, he described it, I think, as the size of a watch face, and it grew to a dinner plate. And you know how big, how slowly mushrooms grow. And uh, it was... It was nice to see him expressing some concern over that, but it was a, it was a mushroom. So, uh, um, Catherine, I think uh, mentioned that uh, that that's sort of a it's sort of a um, it's sort of a touching little thing that he you know he couldn't he he didn't really care about other people, but he did express obvious concern that's about a, this mushroom, like the wallpaper he was staring at all those years. Now, now tell us uh, yeah. the end of the story too, Michael. How's uh, how has Chris Knight ended up? Well, I'm happy to say that Chris Knight is alive and I don't know about well since I, we are no longer in touch you know he really is a hermit he spoke to me he I, I really there's just if Chris Knight happens to be listening and we know he listens to the radio I really have to express my deepest deepest gratitude to Chris Knight he gave me the most valuable thing he owned in the world which was his story and it is an extraordinary story and he asked for nothing in return. He didn't even want money. If money changes hands, that's sort of like a relationship, and he didn't want a relationship. The only thing he really wanted after he told me his story was to be left alone. And though, boy, his, the way he writes and the way he talks, and you know, as a journalist, just the stories he had to tell were so, um, it, 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 you know, it, made, it was so interesting to me. Um, well, I eventually, you know, I, I could do nothing else but say I agree with you, and I haven't been in touch with him in close to two years, but I have heard that he is doing okay, 
at first, after he was released from jail, he was not. He was very much in danger. He even hinted to me, and it's in the book, that he was thinking of killing himself uh, by walking into the woods on a very cold day with very little clothing on and purposely allowing himself to freeze to death because he really didn't like society. He didn't Mm. like it when he was 20 years old, and he didn't like it any better when he was 47. But Chris Knight is a survivor, and luckily his family has a a decent plot of land in central Maine, and he's doing okay. I think the ending is, uh, let's say, call it a semi-optimistic. He's, he's going to be okay, although I got to tell you, I keep thinking one of these days I'm going to hear that Chris Knight has disappeared again back into the woods, and I got to tell you my reaction to that isn't going to be sad. I'm going to be like, well, maybe that's where this man deserves to be. I, th- um, I think I'm with you there, Michael Fankel. <laughs> Again, uh, author of Stranger in the Woods. We had a problem when we were uh, getting this program together. I uh, went to a few different librarians and asked them, and, and no, the book is not available. It's on reserve forever. Everybody's signed up to read it. Everybody I knew that had a copy had it lended out. Uh, literally the uh, hottest book in the state of Maine, I'm told, at the present time. So, um, and, and very well done, Michael. Congratulations. Well, you know, I have to just thank everyone out there, too, for supporting it. Uh, the, the book business is a very tough one, and I, you walk into a library and nobody says, well, there's nothing to read. There's so many, so many choices, and the fact that people selected The Stranger in the Woods to read, I do not take that for granted for a second, and I am deeply grateful. This is how I make my living and support my uh, family. I have three little kids and a wife, and so thank you to all of you readers out there in Maine. Much appreciated. Thank you. Um Michael, uh, are you familiar with Joshua Slocum? Uh, yes. Um, he. Let's see. You have to fill in a little more. The name is. He, you know, I got a bunch of eighteen uh, hundreds Yankee uh, uh, ship captain uh, made a little boat and sailed himself around the world. Around alone, he wrote the classic. Uh, yep. Uh, around alone. Oh yes, yes, yeah. yes. He, that's like the classic, right? The classic. Uh, Around the world alone, or whatever it's called. Yeah, he's like so, first fella to, to. Would we call him a hermit? You know, no. no but you know, he loves to be alone. Like you know, what I remember, uh, he reminded me of Bernard Motiasse. Uh, Motiasse, he's a French guy who won the first um, around the world uh, sailing, or, or could have won the first Vendée Globe. The first Vendée Globe, Globe yes. Race. Yeah, uh, Flocum and a few others. You know, I don't think you could call him a hermit. But you could say that they love, they feel extremely comfortable and mentally secure being alone for very long periods of time. So they share a lot of the they share a lot of the very same traits. You know, um, a lot of uh, a lot of us, uh, me included, at times, you know, really can't go very long without being without you know being alone. And uh, you, you 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 see people like on the streets where they have like two minutes of quote-unquote nothing to do and they'll pull out their phone and start texting like we can't we're constantly mm-hmm. in touch with each other and people who tend to be able to be by themselves tend to be tend to be if you read the history really insightful people quite bright people um creative people you know and so so people like joshua slocum you know i, they, I put them in the sort of uh category of a semi-hermit spiritual so. uh, leader type people jesus for Absolutely. instance went off by himself in the desert for a little while uh Forty days in the Judean desert, all by himself, and he didn't start his ministry until after that. You know, the Buddha sat under the tree, uh, the people tree in uh, in present day India, and he didn't become enlightened until he spent time alone. And even Muhammad, uh, 
sat by himself in the cave in Mecca before uh, you know an angel came to him and gave him the verses of the Quran. So maybe um, leaders of almost all major religions in the world have spent significant time alone. And Michael Finkel, uh, we're running out of time here. We need to make one more point in a world of contradictions when we're not fit to be alone, uh, generally, because we're a tribe animal. Uh, some people are best left alone. Very few, but those people that are best left alone uh, have changed the world. This is, what, this is one another interesting last point, is that the people that have called themselves alone or have been absolutely preferred to be by themselves have changed the world for the rest of us. Even someone like Albert Einstein said, I am a loner in daily life. Uh, uh, Michelangelo said he had no friends and didn't really want any. And Isaac Newton, who pretty much invented modern physics, uh, also had no friends and died celibate. He was a loner. Uh, loners, it's, it's sort of ironic. They have changed the world for the rest of us. And wow. Chris Knight, I don't think he changed the world for the rest of us, but boy, he's given us a bunch to chew on and think about the choices we've made in Mike, our own lives. Michael Finkel, so glad to talk to you this morning. We could barely get it in in 40 minutes. Never got to talk about your story in GQ magazine about the uh, three South Pacific teenagers stranded at sea for 51 days. We wanted to cover two. Uh, they did everything wrong and still live. And, uh, again, uh, we can't thank you enough for a stranger in the woods and talking to us this morning on Boat Talk. Well, shoot, we'll have to, I'll have to come on again to talk about some of the other things. It's been my absolute pleasure, guys. Thank you very much, Mike Nolan. Thank yeah. you, Michael. Good morning. That's Folk it. talk about out. Yep. Make room for uh, Rich Hillsinger coming up next with On the Wing here on Community Radio, WERU-FM, Blue Hill, 89.9, 99.9 in Bangor, and on the Internet at WERU.org. Thanks to Amy Brown down in the engine room. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Gamble & Hunter Sailmakers, making sails for classic boats, cruising boats, and the main wind jammers for more than 30 years at 16 Lime Rock Street in Camden, gambleandhunter.com. Support for WERU also comes from Allen Insurance and Financial of Camden, helping to insure main boats and their people